Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. But now we're going to pick up the reading in verse 11 through chapter 25. Excuse me, verse 25. (laughs) And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, our Lord Jesus Christ, after He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till His enemies are made His footstool. For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, set apart. Hello, Mr. Perfect. Hello, Miss Perfect. You've been perfected. (laughs) Forever. How's that? But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, then he, the Holy Spirit, in Jeremiah 31, adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high, a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a, true, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up (coughs) love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." Where do you live? Beautiful answer. I ask the question, where do you live? In heaven. Now, most of the human race, 99.9% of the human race would hear that and say, what? Looks to me like I'm on earth. But what does the Scripture say and what does the Holy Spirit say here in His letter to the Hebrew Christians? All of heaven's resources 
are readily available to you. If you are not walking in them, it is because that you are choosing not to. They are there. This is the God of mercy, our favorite word. Grace, provision. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And He is there with all of that. The only restraint on that process is us. But what have we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25? We've read about heaven's resources, as our brother Jim, where do we live? We live in heaven. We have access to heaven's courts right now. Right now. Every provision of heaven is ours. So what is the author pointing us to? Of course, he's, he's, he's speaking to these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish people who came to faith in Christ. And they charged hard after Jesus. I mean, and they became very, very, very committed disciples. As you read the, the entire context, especially towards the close of this letter, he tells them, he reminds them of the loyalty that they had had for Jesus. Of how, and, but they, over the course of years, the, the persecution was so heavy and so consistent that as the words he will use are, now your hands are hanging down and your knees have become weak. Because instead of handing, rolling that burden off of their shoulders onto the shoulders of their Savior, they had gotten to the point where they failed to do that and they carried the burden. And as they carried the burden, they got, it got heavier and heavier and they got weaker and weaker. And he is actually reminding them. And the author is saying, I'm reminding you. I've told you these things before. Well, they are tempted. In, in order to decrease the persecution level, they're being tempted to turn back to a form of Judaism. And anytime you mix anything in with the gospel, the persecution decreases. Anything that makes the gospel unclear or diminished or complicated by something else, anytime you add to God's mercy something about your, your, your conduct, the gospel promise has gone away. You poisoned it. And that's what they've been, and they're being drawn to this in order to get away from the persecution. And so what he's reminding them of, why would you go back to what you already abandoned? Why did you abandon it? Because you had these mighty promises in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the Hebrew Scriptures. Let's just step back for one moment to chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, and this is a quote from Psalm 40, Verses 6 through 8, written probably a thousand years before Jesus' birth. This is a prophetic psalm. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Now, I dare say that any Jew in David's day, as he's writing this psalm, is going to say, wait a minute. The book of Leviticus is all about sacrifices and offerings, and we build a temple, and we do this all the time. 
But he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. But this is David speaking as his greater son, as his greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is prophetically being stated here? What I come, when I become in humanity, when I come in humanity, what I will do will displace what is found in the book of Leviticus. It will displace all those sacrifices. By the way, those sacrifices didn't accomplish anything. God knew they... In fact, the law of Moses, especially found in the book of Leviticus, especially the Ten Commandments, as I've repeated over and over, was a diagnostic tool. It was to show them what their problem was. And the fact that they're having to come back year after year after year after year to present the same sacrifices, it's got to occur to them, wait a minute, if this works, why do we have to do it more than once? And that was the point God wanted them to get so that they would actually go back. They already, you know they had the gospel in Egypt? Did you know they had the gospel? Moses had the gospel? Now, Moses had the gospel. Abraham had the gospel. And as we've cited before, the oldest book in our Bible, this is quiz time. Who can tell us what the oldest book in the Bible is? What was the first book to be written? Job. Job was the old, is the first book to be written. Job was a Gentile. <laughs> a, compa- uh, a contemporary of Abraham, maybe older than Abraham. And out of all the darkness that is the book of Job, believe me, you read the book of Job, you're going to be, when is this going to end? And there is an explosion of light off the page in Job 19, verse 25, when Job just in desperation reaches back to the only hope he has. I know that my Redeemer lives and shall stand upon the earth. And though after my flesh worms destroy this body, still from within my own flesh, I will see God. So where were the Jews who took relationship with God seriously, who kept going with offerings and offerings and offerings for no effect? Where are they supposed to go? They're supposed to go to Job. They're supposed to go to Abraham. We were talking about this in the Sunday school class. They're supposed to go to Genesis 15. And Abram believed God to solve his unsolvable problem when it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's pre-law. The law didn't replace anything. It was laid on top of that reality. And it was designed to drive them to the gospel promises they already had. And then Jesus came and fulfilled everything found in the law of Moses. All of the sacrifices, all of the rituals found in the temple are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Can you imagine how mind-numbing and angry those Jewish leaders got? God when he goes in and cleanses the temple because they had turned it into a criminal enterprise to fill their pockets. Who, how dare you 
how dare you? And he said, this temple is going to be destroyed. And they said, how dare you? And he says, oh, but someone greater than the temple is here. Someone greater than. I am God in the flesh. I am God, as John says in John 1.12, and the word became flesh and tented, tabernacled. Um, that's the literal translation. And tented among us, just like the ancient tabernacle, which was a tent, and tented among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus completely displaced all of that. But that's not surprising. What did it say? What's what's the next passage that's quoted? It's not the next one quoted, but it's, it's the one that says, I'm going to make a new Jeremiah 31. I'm going to make a new covenant. I love this. 600 years before Jesus' coming, Jeremiah the prophet is in Jerusalem Many of the Jews have already been taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. Jeremiah is still there in Jerusalem. He's still trying to bring repentance to the people. He's still being used by God. He's God's spokesman to the people. And they hate this man. They hate him because he keeps telling them the truth. He keeps telling them the truth. And finally, in Jeremiah 31, God says through Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Not like the covenant I made with your forefathers on Mount Sinai, which covenant you broke in every conceivable way. This is what I'm going to do. I am, I am, I am your sins and iniquities. Remember no more. I'm going to put my word inside of you. I'm going to do, I'm going to create an outcome that you could never hope to achieve. I will write my law on your heart so that you will be incentivized and equipped by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to actually walk in it. What had only been frustration city for you, well, you'll discover yourself as you're walking in the Spirit, as you're believing God, as you're trusting God. Oh, look at that. The law is being kept. Well, Who would have thought? (laughs) That's what's going to happen. And your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Okay, many of you have already heard this account. I can't, and D.J. Miller isn't here. (laughs) He's part of the story. This is 20 years ago. The first class I taught in the Christian Men's Job Corps, I became one of the three Bible teachers, and I got to do Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights, Tuesday nights usually. Well, the first class I taught, first series, uh, it was our second session, and uh, I was supposed to get a full 60 minutes, and I finished 10 minutes early. Well, Tom Jones, who runs the Job Corps, was sitting right next to me. He said, we got to fill your time. 
Okay? Well, just before our Bible class started, these guys had signed a covenant with the Job Corps. The Job Corps will do this for me, and this is what I will do in response. And so I said, okay, guys, you just signed a covenant. Let's look at the covenant God wants to make with us. And I took them to Jeremiah 31. And ladies and gentlemen, all I did was read the passage. And there are about 10, 12 guys sitting around this table. Half of them or so are alumni of the Texas prison system. And uh, all I did, and when I got to, I'm going to make a new covenant And when I got to that third I will, your sins and iniquities remember no more, Ernie Rodriguez was sitting over here about seven feet from me. He started hyperventilating. His mouth... (gasps) What? (laughs) And then DJ, Darren's dad, Dorothy Sudman, sitting over on this side... What do we do? Yes, he talks that way, doesn't he? And I said, well, what do you do if someone offers you a gift? And he hesitated a moment and gave the spot-on perfect answer. You hold out an empty hand. And I said, that is what you do. And within three or four days, Ernie and his wife, I think DJ was already in the kingdom, I'm not but within three or four days, Ernie and his wife were in the kingdom. And it was so amazing. But all I did was read it. Your sins and... God says 600 years before the coming of His Son, I'm going to make a new covenant. What does Jesus say? And we'll be celebrating this next week, the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant In my blood, I am going to do something in the next 24 hours that is going to initiate, that is going to be the foundation for the, that will be the reality of a new covenant. I will fulfill everything in the book of Leviticus. I will fulfill all that. You won't need to make animal sacrifices anymore. They weren't accomplishing anything anyways, which was the point. But Jesus did it. Am I walking in that? Am I walking in that? Part of our, what, part of our prayer request is people who are being attacked. Marriages that are being attacked. People being attacked. People being burdened by sorrow in the loss of a mother. People being attacked. Our God is greater than Satan. He steps in and gives a promise, gives a truth, gives a declaration that will shame the enemy. Satan purposes our destruction. God purposes our comfort, our fortification, our growth. And what is that? That is about walking in kingdom truth. And what is the burden of Hebrews chapter 10? We walk in kingdom truth. Even as this book of Hebrews is being written, though the temple's still there in Jerusalem, the Jews can walk into that temple. They can still do all these sacrifices. They can do all these things. But why would you? Why would you? When you 
those who've entrusted yourself to the work of Jesus of Nazareth done for you on the cross? Temple in Jerusalem? Why would I want to bother going to the little scale model when I can step into the reality of God's presence right now? Standing here on the shore of the Mediterranean in North Africa. I mean, that's where they were. Probably modern-day Tunisia. I can step into God's presence right now. And all of the heavenly temple's resources are available to me. My Savior is at the right hand of the Father. He is in the place of divine authority and power. Every need I have, the resources are there. And He's more eager to answer my prayer than I am to pray it. And that's what the author is saying. Listen. All, and you find the prophecies here in the Hebrew Scriptures saying this is going to happen. So this is no surprise. Our Lord Jesus Christ is both present in heaven as our high priest, as the one who's already presented that eternal sacrifice. He presented His own blood in heaven's temple. The effect is the gospel content. I can, if I simply cry out to God for His mercy 100% of the time, based on the work of Jesus done on the cross, 100% of the time, God's response is a glad, amen, hallelujah, yes. That's the reality. We have the right to walk in. And so when we are being tested, for example, the young man whose mother just died, that's an authentic thing. You've got some things to deal with. You've got emotional turmoil. But Jesus will be with you. In the same way that He walked Israel through the two walls of water that was the Red Sea, He will walk you through the test and restrain the hand of the destructor. And that's the point of the passage we just read. And Jesus fulfilled it all. Do not abandon Him for immediate relief. You won't find it. You find authentic help, authentic strength only from Him. Any comments or questions before we close? God is good. Yes, sir. Right. Right. Which is exactly what the enemy wants. And many, many times I see where as people start to, to pray and pursue the Lord, even strong Christians, that things start to look even like they are getting worse. But it's because God is letting things come out completely to the light so that he can 
Amen. As you're explaining all of this, I can't, I mean, King David. (laughs) King David. Samuel the prophet comes to Jesse, his father, in Bethlehem and says, well, God has decided He's going to replace Saul on the throne of Israel, and it's going to be one of your sons, so bring your sons here. And in in March, seven boys. And God says, no, seven times. Well, Jesse, you got any more sons? Well, there's the one I keep out with the sheep. David will say in Psalm 27, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. You don't make a statement like that out of nothing. That was his experience. And then he's elevated, he's he's anointed, but he also kills Goliath. He's brought into Saul's household. And then Saul sees him as a threat. And Saul twice tries to murder David, throws a spear at him two different times. Finally, David goes for how many years out in the wilderness? Did things get better or worse? They got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then he finally went to the gent. By the way, this is a prophetic pattern. He went to the Philistines. And the Philistines, because he was tired of running around in the Israeli wilderness being chased by Saul. And so the Philistines said, you know, we've seen real leadership ability on your part. We're going to give you a segment of Philistia to govern. And they did. And then when Saul died, David became king of Israel with no apologies to anyone. But how many years of rejection and danger. I mean, he had people trying to kill him, and he had betrayers like crazy. But God stepped him to the throne with no apologies necessary. And oh, by the way, two of the towns in that Philistine territory were Cherith and Peleth. And for the house of David, beginning with David until the house of David ended, the Cherethites and Pelethites were the palace guard. They had a special devotion and allegiance to the house of David. So God brought generation-long blessing out of that testing. But David could have thrown his hands up many, many, many times, and he said, no. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. right and to doubt God he lies to you about you and your sinfulness because you've been forgiven you know if God says you're forgiven are you forgiven this this is creation right (laughs) but also he lies to you about God Please be aware of that. We had a Bible study just about three weeks ago in the the Faithful Fishers Bible study. We looked at uh, uh, Genesis 3. 
Satan, the serpent, lied to Eve about God. He's trying to deny you something you have a right to by not being able to eat that fruit. Don't believe your lying eyes about the, the blessing you're surrounded with. No, he's trying to deny you something you have a right to. Satan wants his stuff back. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yes, sir. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand all that except one thing. How is there any way in the world in the world can you make Jesus a liar? That doesn't make sense. Can you make no, you can't make Jesus a liar, right? Say it again. Okay. Say that Verse ten. Yeah. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him God a liar and his word is not in us. How do you make God a liar if you can't lie? Well, you make him out to be a liar. You, you're not making him a liar. <laughs> yes, sir. He was speak, he was seeking God all the time. Mm-hmm. It was. Absolutely. Yes. He treasured what God said he should treasure. And in fact, his treasure could never be taken away from him. Even when he's in the wilderness, what am I going to eat tonight? He's experiencing God's presence and provision. Yes, sir. That's right. That's right. And I'm going to make reference and then we will close to the most important passage in the whole Bible. This is what I tell people anyways. Okay. Brand this on your brain. Most important passage in the whole, chapter, passage in the whole Bible. Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. Zechariah is being guided by an angel from one vision to another to another. And he, the angel, guided me to, I'm seeing 
Joshua the high priest. They've come back from the Babylonian captivity. Here's Joshua the high priest, the one who stands for the people before God, standing before the angel of the Lord, which in the Hebrew Scriptures, that is a visual depiction of God Himself. And Satan standing at His right hand to oppose Him. And the Lord said to Satan, I rebuke you, Satan. I who have chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord dressed in filthy garments. Not his tidy, neat, high priestly robes. He's dressed in filthy garments. Why? Because he stands for the people before God, and that's the condition of the people. In their own minds, those... And the angel of the Lord says to the attending angel, take, angels, plural, take the filthy garments off of him and clothe him in rich robes, party clothes, not priestly robes, party clothes. And then Zechariah chimes in and put the clean turban on his head. This is the priestly turban that says holy to the Lord on the front. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Folks, that's just five verses that captures it all. It captures the picture of the reality. What was the, These people had been sent into captivity. Why? They sacrificed their children to the fire god Molech. They incessantly, you read through the historical section of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's just like, why do you keep going back to Baal worship? What's Baal ever done for you? Nothing. But they did. And they've come back, and they've got to be wondering, you know, we've got all those great promises God made to Abraham and our forefathers, but as wicked as we and our forefathers were, could it be that we have out God's willingness to keep those promises? And Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5 is a gigantic no. I am the forgiver. I am the cleanser. And by the way, we're throwing a party. It's not just a formal, legalistic welcome. It's party time. And Satan hates it. God loves God. Who invented fun? God did. <laughs> that's, that's why it's part of our culture. Our Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are like what you are like. Father, we want to thank you that you are like that, that what you are like. God, the Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are like what you are like. And you laid your hand on the nape of our neck and threw us in the kingdom. And we are so grateful. And we again pray for those who we prayed for earlier who are facing challenges or facing tests, who have seen failure or are so frustrated and given up on themselves. Lord, we just ask that you would shame Satan, unmask him, but also show yourself to these people that they may be energized by you unto kingdom glory. In your name, Jesus, shepherd, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.